right, the Gospel of Luke, um, written by Luke. Luke was a, a doctor, not, not quite the same as doctors today, but nevertheless he was a, an ancient world doctor. Um, and Luke's claim to fame is that he is the only Gentile biblical writer. And that's his claim to fame. Now he wrote this Gospel, the Gospel of Luke, and he wrote the Acts of the Apostles. And uh, the Acts of the Apostles is really Luke's Gospel Part 2. They're sort of like, it's one book but in, in two parts. All right. And, um, and when we come on to, to, to do the Acts, we'll see the reason why Luke is the only Gentile biblical writer. So every other book in the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament, are written by Jews. But this Gospel, Luke, and the Acts of the Apostles, also written by Luke, the two books, the one writer who is Gentile, and we'll see the significance of that when we come on to Acts. Now, um, Luke appears in Acts, uh, that's, that, that's where we get to know him, that's where we sort of like discover that he was a doctor, and he was a, a close friend of Paul, and he was also a co-worker with Paul, so that often when Paul was travelling around to various churches, or indeed going to areas and planting churches for the first time, uh, Luke, Luke would often um, accompany him. Now, <clears throat> um, it's very similar to the Gospel of Matthew in some ways. Um, obviously, bear in mind that it's written to a Gentile audience, so his concerns are slightly different. But where it's very similar to Matthew is that it's very detailed on the birth of Jesus, and his baptism and temptation. Luke really homes in on that, um, you know, as, as Matthew does. By temptation, I mean the, the temptation in the wilderness. Um, and then after the temptation in the wilderness, um, he skips the eight months of Jesus's Judean ministry. Now that eight months is recorded only by John's Gospel, so we'll come on to that uh, when we do John's Gospel. And he, he skips that and goes straight the, to the two-year Galilean ministry. So this was the two years when Jesus was up north, all right, in the north of Israel. Um, he, he concentrates on that, though not as much as Matthew. Matthew concentrates on that two-year Galilean ministry more than Luke, all right. But what Luke concentrates on more than Matthew was the, the, the later... Judean and Perean ministry in the, the last few months of Jesus's life, i.e. that was when Jesus went down south uh, to Judea and also spent time on the other side of the Jordan, so to the east of Judea in the region called Perea. So, so, so they are his concerns, that's how he lays his gospel out and we'll see that as we, um, as we proceed. Okay, right, now chapter one, and uh, immediately we discover that he's writing to a bloke called Theophilus. Doesn't matter who Theophilus is, but that's who um, Luke was writing to, and, and both that and Acts were written to him. Now, <clears throat> he dives in and he starts with the birth of John the Baptist. You remember Jesus' cousin. And, um, and, and he tells us of a priest who was called Zechariah, and he was married to Elizabeth. Now, they were both old, they were getting on a bit, 
and Elizabeth was barren, so they, they, they didn't have any children. And that was, that, was, that was tough. I mean, it's tough for anyone, but it was especially tough um, for Jews. And uh, on one day, Zechariah was uh, doing his duties in, in, in the temple, so he was a, a priest, and um, an angel appears to him and tells him that his prayers for a son are going to be answered. That tells us, this, you know, Zechariah had been praying. He's an old man. He's been praying his whole life for a son. Now, uh, the angel tells him that his prayers are going to be answered and uh, tells him that, that his son, when born, is to be a Nazarite. Now, the Nazarites were like a, a, a specific Old Testament prophet elite type thing. And uh, what, what kind of stood them out from the rest of the Jews is that they were to be completely teetotal and, uh, and they were to have long hair. They weren't to cut their hair. And, um, uh, oh, I can't think of his name. Samson, thank you. Samson was a Nazarite, for example. So John was, as he was going to be called, was, was going to be um, a Nazarite in the same way that Samson was. And, um, and the angel also tells him that, that, that he's to be called John and that he is going to be the... Elijah figure who precedes the coming of the Messiah and that is direct reference to the prophecies of Malachi which is the last book in the Old Testament so he's told that his son has got to be a Nazarite got to be called John and he's going to be the Elijah figure who fulfills the prophecies of Malachi and appears shortly before the coming of Messiah and that he is going to be the one, the prophet, who gets Israel ready for the Messiah. And there Luke refers to prophecies in Isaiah. About, you know, the, the, the one who, who would come, a voice crying in the wilderness, etc., etc. So, so the angel appears to Zechariah in the temple and, and, and lays all that on him. Now, Zechariah's response to the angel is that he expresses doubts that this could be. And he explains to the angel it's all because Elizabeth is so old. So it's the age-old problem with marriage, it's, it's her fault, isn't it? <laughs> and uh, he explains to the angel that, that oh no, this, this can't be because Elizabeth was, was so old. Now at that point, the angel identifies himself as Gabriel. So we have here not just any old angel, oh no, bit of a special angel this one because he's an archangel so suddenly John uh, sorry Zechariah kind of knows who he's up against and, uh, and, and and having told Zechariah that he's actually Gabriel an archangel then proceeds to tell him that he will be struck dumb because of his unbelief until the promise is fulfilled and uh, so I suppose really that's a tactful way of saying if you can't speak, babe, shut up, you know. And that's literally what the angel says, you're going to be struck dumb because you've doubted, because you've expressed unbelief in the promise of God to you, you'll be dumb until uh, the promise is actually fulfilled. And Elizabeth duly becomes pregnant. We now jump forward six months and Gabriel sure probably they call him Gabby in heaven but Gabriel now appears to Mary the Virgin Mary 
and now tells her that she is going to be pregnant and um and, and that she's going to bear jesus um and also tells her that elizabeth who was her relative now we're not told specifically what but elizabeth was obviously a great aunt or something like that which made john the baptist and jesus cousins all right um and gabriel tells all right um now mary then goes to visit elizabeth and when when she gets there john the baptist leaps the baby leaps in elizabeth's womb as mary walks in and this is incredible this this is a, a fetal reaction of john the baptist to the presence of jesus in fetal form amazing what's what's oh fetal fatal yeah well done yeah honestly coming up with puns that i'm missing myself now goodness goodness right okay and um and when that happens when john the baptist the baby leaps in elizabeth's womb because of the presence of jesus in mary's womb then mary gives a a, a, a psalm of of praise to god and um it's one of those like prayers in the bible that's become very well known it's it's, it's known as the magnificat um and that's because in the latin version of the bible that it's it's glorifies that's the beginning of of the psalm and, and it's the one that goes my, my soul doth magnify the lord and my spirit doth rejoice in god my saviour for he has regarded the lowliness of his handmaid it's beautiful it's you know well worth a good read and, and so there mary responds with this psalm of, of of praise right we now shoot forward to the birth of john the baptist um so john the baptist he's well he's not john the baptist yet he's just little baby john obviously um <laughs> not not preaching yet not not doing a lot of prophesying at this precise moment but he's he's born um his mother was with him at the time obviously um born at a particularly young age as well it's worth noting that about john um and he's he's taken to the temple on the eighth day to be circumcised this was according obviously to the law so john so, sorry so his dad zechariah and elizabeth take him along to the temple um, to be circumcised and that is also where the baby was to be officially named as well now obviously the people at the circumcision in the temple all assume that the child would be called Zechariah because that was that was so so very normal all right um, you know to be named after the father or at least to be named after a grandfather or something like that and uh, and they kind of like assumed um, that he'd be called Zechariah. Well, of course, at the moment, Zechariah isn't saying much, is he? So Elizabeth tells them that, no, in actual fact, he's going to be called John. And this amazes everyone because there's no Johns in the family, all right? And, uh, you know, and, and so ev everyone is surprised at what Elizabeth says. And so they turn now to Zechariah. You know, they sort of look at who's, who's probably signing away for, for, for all he's worth um, and what he does is he gets a bit of paper and he just writes down John right so he says John and he writes it down and as soon as he does that he can speak again 
because now the promise has been fulfilled. He's written down John. It's a bit late, but he's showing a bit of faith now. So it's kind of like, you know, the angel, old, old Gabby, probably, you know, like waves his magic wand or whatever it was he did in the beginning, you know, to stop him from, so he says, right, okay, you can talk again now. And suddenly Zechariah can speak. And what he does, his first words is he prophesies. And he prophesies about the future ministry of his son, John, who was, of course, to be John the Baptist. And uh, that prophecy, again, it's a uh, fairly famous, it's, you know, sort of uh, passed into, you know, sort of like a church tradition has been called the Benedictus. And, and that's, again, the Latin because it starts off praise be and Benedictus is Latin for, for praise be. And uh, then we're told that John grows up and he lived in the desert until his public ministry began. Right, now we, we, we move on to chapter 2. And um, now we're back with Joseph and Mary and, um, and little Jesus, baby Jesus. And uh, a, a census is being taken of the Roman world, um, which means that Joseph and Mary have to go to Bethlehem in order to register because Joseph, and, and indeed Mary was as well, but Joseph was of uh, the line of King David and so they had to go to Bethlehem to register that. Um, and it was whilst there registering for the census uh, that Jesus was born in the stable because there was uh, no room in the inn. Now, as, as that's happening, um, angels appear to shepherds who were tending the, um, the flocks round about. And, um, and, and the angels appear to those shepherds and say that the Saviour is, is, is born this, this day. Now, what's interesting um, is that the, the animal sacrifices for the temple were raised in Bethlehem. That was where they tended it. So all the farming that went on for the animals the animal sacrifices in the temple in Jerusalem were going on in Bethlehem. These, these um, shepherds were looking after the animals and the sheep and the lambs that were going to be used in sacrifice. And of course the point is that the angels are appearing to them and saying, well look, there's, there's another lamb of God for you to go and tend to now, and, and he's the real lamb of God. And because uh, these were the guys raising all the lambs of God for the, uh, for the temple sacrifice. So they, they, they go off and they, they find Joseph and Mary and Jesus in, in the stable. Uh, then we go forward eight days and Jesus is circumcised and named. Um, so that, that standard procedure. Um, and then we go forward 32 days later, which is 40 days from the birth of Jesus, when he's officially presented in the temple by his parents for the relevant sacrifices to be made, um, you know, at the birth of a, a son. Now, while Mary and Joseph are doing this, presenting him at the temple, um, so Jesus is 40 days old now, um, there was a guy called Simeon, and uh, he'd, he'd been told by the Lord um, that, that he, he would see Messiah before he died. And, um, and, and, and Simeon refers to Messiah as the consolation of Israel, which is a lovely name for the Messiah. 
And uh, while, while Jesus was being presented at the temple, the Holy Spirit leads Simeon to the temple. And, uh, and, and Simeon takes him in his arms and pronounces him uh, to be the Messiah. And um, his words of proclamation and praise have become known as the Nunc Dimittis, from the Latin, now dismiss. And, and, and that's, you know, let, let thy servant, dismiss thy servant with peace, because my eyes have seen the salvation of the Lord. And he says, right, I've seen the Messiah, now I can die. That's literally what he's saying. And he turns to Mary, and he prophesies to her. And he tells her that Jesus, her son Jesus, would cause the rising and the falling of many. So that's Jesus' good news to those who are saved. He's very, very bad news to those who reject him. Uh, he prophesies that Jesus was going to be a sign that would be much spoken against in order that the thoughts of many hearts would be revealed. And, and as Jesus moved, you know, amongst men, it was very often their speaking against him that revealed the sin in their hearts. And he told Mary that a sword would pierce her heart too. Because, of course, she had to look on at the suffering of Jesus. She was there at the foot of the cross when he died. Now, another prophet or a prophetess enters the temple now and this is a prophetess called Anna and she proclaims Jesus as being the means of redemption so I mean the temple is just I mean they're herding in you know all the prophets and all the people who really knew the Lord and all the the old timers really mature in the Lord they're pouring in and they're proclaiming publicly that this baby is Messiah so after all that, Joseph and Mary return to Galilee and to Nazareth, where they live. So they go back up, they've come down south, you know, now they go back up, the nor up north where they lived, and Nazareth was, of course, uh, the, the, the town or the village that they lived in. Now, cross-reference that with Matthew's Gospel, and like the visit of the Magi and the slaughter of the innocents by Herod, and the flight to Egypt and back again, that train of events would have been set off 18 months, two years or so later, when, when Jesus was like 18 months, two years old. Right, now Luke takes us forward to uh, Jesus' childhood, and this is the, the one story we get of, of Jesus' childhood, and it's when he's 12 years old, so it's around kind of like bar mitzvah time, as it were. And uh, on this occasion, Jesus and his family, and there'd have been a herd of them coming from Nazareth, um, they, they came down for the Passover as they did every year. And when it finished, like Mary and Joseph went home, all right, you know, back to Nazareth. And uh, when they got there, they realised that Jesus hadn't turned up. I mean, it was, you know, kind of Jesus could have, they probably thought that Jesus was going back with other relatives because it would have been a big extended family. But the point was, by the time they got home and by the time they got themselves together, they realised that no one had brought Jesus back. So, so Jesus, as far as they were concerned, was possibly lost in, in Jerusalem. So they, they, they pile back. And of course, when, when they get there, they uh, find him in the temple. 
And here's Jesus in the temple, 12 year old. And Luke tells us that he is amazing everyone, and that would have included the priests and the Pharisees, the teachers of the law as well, that he was amazing everyone with his questions and his answers and his understanding. And it seems clear that even this early, Jesus knew exactly who he was. Now Mary, Mary scolds him, and, uh, and it's interesting this bit, and because uh, Mary, Mary asks him why why he treated them like this, because obviously it's given her and Joseph a bit of a turn, and uh, and when she she tells him off, she starts off she says your father and I, obviously referring to Joseph. And Jesus' response is fascinating. He says, don't you know that I would be in my father's house? Now, can you see what Jesus is doing there, even as a 12-year-old boy? Joseph was legally his father, his adoptive father. So that, that's absolutely right. But Jesus was unique because although he had an adoptive father, his real father was in heaven. And so therefore, when Mary says, Jesus, your father and I, Jesus makes it quite clear who his real father was, the God of the temple in Jerusalem. And so there you see Jesus taking that slight step back from his family because of his mission, because of who his father actually was. and. Um, and then Luke said that Mary treasured all these things in her heart. Right, now, now we move on to chapter 3, and now Luke gives us the ministry of John the Baptist, um, tells us that, that this is fulfilling Isaiah chapter 40. I mean, not that in, at this time they had chapter and verse in the Bible, I mean, all that came later, you know, but um, you know, but here Luke quotes what in our Bibles is Isaiah chapter forty. Um, you know, demonstrating that John the Baptist was this prophet that Isaiah spoke of, who would come in preparation of the appearance of Messiah. Um, he gives us a kind of a little bit of an insight into what what John was was preaching. Obviously, he was baptizing people, calling people to repentance, and uh, when the Pharisees turned up. This is what you know, John, John tells him. He calls him a brood of vipers. Uh, he says, produce fruit that befits repentance. And he says, don't, don't say that we have Abraham as our father, because he says God can take a stone and turn it into a child of Abraham. And, and he says, every tree that doesn't bear fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. So this is pretty straightforward stuff. He, he was no diplomat, John the Baptist. Um, you know, he said it the way it was. And of course, he was there to bring the Jews to repentance so that they were ready to follow Jesus. And, um, and then he, he, he goes on in, in his teaching, he, he tells the people the importance of sharing with each other and he gives the example of tunics and food because of course food and clothing, very important there because I mean not everyone had houses to be in so you know sort of like often your, your coat was your covering, it's what kept you warm, kept you alive in the winter at night and so he teaches the importance of sharing. Um, he tells the tax collectors that they should be honest and not collect too much taxes. And the tax collectors were notorious. You know, these were the Jews, but who were collecting taxes for the Romans. And uh, they were notorious at overcharging 
everyone. Uh, he tells the soldiers that they mustn't falsely accuse anyone uh, and that they mustn't <coughs> extort money and that they must be content with their pay because the point is the soldiers would often work protection rackets in order to get money and John the Baptist says no, repentance means you don't do anything like that. And, um, and he announces one who was going to come who was mightier than he was and he said that he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So he says, I'm, I'm here baptizing in water, but he says, there's one mightier than I who's coming, and um, he's gonna baptize you, not with water, but he's gonna baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And then Luke tells us at that point, how John the Baptist eventually ended up in prison, uh, because he, you'll remember, Herod had married Herodias, who was the divorced wife of his brother Philip and that was illegal under the law and John the Baptist had rebuked Herod as the king over the Jews for doing that and for his trouble he'd been thrown into prison and, and Luke just gives us that information now. Then, then he gives us the baptism of Jesus and the Holy Spirit descending upon him as a dove and John the Baptist baptizing him uh, we saw that in more detail uh, when we did Matthew. Um, and then at that point, Luke gives Jesus's genealogy. Now, Matthew gave Joseph's genealogy back to Adam, uh, sorry, back to Abraham, so that's all that mattered to the Jews, and Matthew's gospel was to the Jews. Luke's writing to the Gentiles, and Luke gives us Mary's genealogy. Although it starts off looking like it's Joseph's, it's only because in any listings, including the wife, it was always done in the name of their husband. But in fact, what we have here is the genealogy of Mary, and Luke takes it right back past Abraham to Adam, because he's writing to Gentiles. So he, he gives the whole caboodle. So he traces Mary's genealogy right back to Adam. Right, okay, chapter four. <coughs> And uh, we, we have the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness, uh, which, which is much the same as in Matthew, so I won't say anything about that. And um, then he tells us of Jesus going to Nazareth, which was his hometown. So here we see um, he's, he's skipped over, uh, you know, like the first bit of the ministry of Jesus, all right, the bit that only John does. He's skipped over that, and, and he's gone straight to the two-year ministry that Jesus spent in Galilee, and that is just like Matthew and Mark did as well. So here we have Jesus, we're a year or so into his ministry now, and he's gone home, he's gone to Nazareth. And he goes into the synagogue, he says, could someone just get me a glass of water? I'm a bit dry, thanks. Um, he goes to the synagogue on the Sabbath, and he reads, he goes up to the front and he reads from Isaiah 61 and the first two verses. And these are the verses from Isaiah when it talks about the Lord, the Spirit of the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor, uh, to bring freedom for the captives and the recovery of sight to the blind, blah, blah, blah. Now this was known to be a messianic prophecy. Jesus reads that prophecy from Isaiah and then tells them that this day it has been fulfilled. So what Jesus is saying, I'm here lads, I am the Messiah. And the response of that from the people 
Thanks, Gary. The immediate response of the people is that they weren't having it and they rejected him. And Jesus then reminded them that in the time of Elijah, the only widow who had her son raised from the dead was the Gentile widow of Zarephath. So in the time of Elijah, there were lots of widows whose, whose sons died. But he was saying only the Gentile widow of Zarephath had her son raised from the dead. And he reminds them as well that Elisha, and you'll remember Elisha took over from Elijah, so just a few years later, that at the time of Elisha, there were lots of lepers in Israel, but it was Naaman the Syrian, a Gentile, who was healed um, of leprosy by Elisha. And of course, what Jesus is saying here, he's saying that if they reject him, then the kingdom will be taken from Israel and given to the Gentiles, to the church, which is exactly what happened. And then him saying, he refers back to the time of Elijah and Elisha, when, because Israel was out of fellowship with God then, the blessings went to the Gentiles rather than to Israel. And Jesus is saying, if you reject me, that's what's going to happen to you again. The blessings that are for you are going to be taken and given to the Gentiles, which is exactly what happened because Israel was eventually cut out and replaced by the Gentile church. Now, their response to this was that they dragged him, they rushed him, they dragged him out of the synagogue and they took him up a hill, they dragged him up a hill where there was like a cliff to throw him off. In other words, they were mad, they were hopping mad. I mean, it, this, this was really, you know, they hated him for what he was saying. And, um, but it says, but he walked right through them. So you've got this crowd, they've got Jesus, they've, dra they've dragged him from the synagogue, they've dragged him up to the top of this cliff to throw him off. This is Satan trying to kill him, just like it was through Herod. All right? This is Satan trying to kill him. But his time hadn't come. And suddenly, do you remember that bit in It's a Wonderful Life? All right. When, uh, you know, when the angel all right, is showing, you know, sort of like um, James Stewart, what his life will be like, if he, or, or what the town will be like if he'd never been born. And remember, the police officer is fighting with the angel, and suddenly the angel just vanishes into thin air. Well, here, the crowd have got Jesus, and yet he, he just walks out through them, because his time hadn't come. His death was nothing, ultimately, it was nothing to do with Satan, it was nothing to do with Israel, it was nothing to do with the Romans, it was nothing to do with the mob. Jesus died at the right time, doing God's will. And this wasn't his time to die, so he walked right through them. All right. Then he goes to Capernaum, this is still all in Galilee, and uh, he goes into the synagogue, and uh, this was on the Sabbath again, and there was a demonized man there, and Jesus cast the demons out. While he was doing it, the demons were declaring who he was, and Jesus was telling them to shut up. He silenced the demons. He wouldn't let the demons say who he was, because Jesus didn't want, want demons testifying to who he was. Then he goes to Simon Peter's house, and um, here he, he heals uh, Simon Peter's mother-in-law. She had a fever and Jesus heals her. And that evening many came from 
all over that area and, and many were healed and many were delivered of demons so a real out outpouring of the spirit there the next morning jesus goes off to a solitary pl place to pray before dawn and uh, but nevertheless the people find him and 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 he sets off to galilee so that now he sets off on the galilean two-year tour proper okay so we've seen the beginning of it goes to nazareth, nazareth and capernaum and now he sets off and, and now he begins his two years of traveling around the northern part of, uh, of israel now chapter five um we have the the calling of peter james and john by the lake of gennesaret which was the sea of galilee remember luke is writing to gentiles so slightly different names different peoples knew different areas by different names but the lake gennesaret was the sea of galilee i mean jesus has known them he'd met them a year earlier and in in the indeed he'd been staying at simon peter's but but now he there's an official calling of peter and james and john and uh when when jesus went to the lake to find them they'd been fishing all night but they caught nothing and uh, and you remember jesus said cast it over the other side of the boat and there was the miraculous catch of fish i mean it nearly sank the boats they they caught so much and uh, in response to that, Peter falls on his knees and, and, and he says, depart from me, Lord, because I'm a sinful man. And, and Peter beginning to experience the conviction of sin when you're face to face with, with the Son of God. Now we have Jesus healing a leper. And he sends the leper to the priests to verify it. Now here we've got the messianic sign you remember in Leviticus instructions for diagnosing a leper and instructions for what you do when a leper's been healed. No leper had ever been healed in Israel, so these instructions had never been used before. And you'll remember under Pharisaic Judaism, under the teaching of the Pharisees, under the tradition of the elders, all these different names for it, they had designated the healing of a, lep of a leper as being a messianic sign. And so what happens now, a messianic sign has been done and the period of investigations and interrogations now follow. So a group of Pharisees are dispatched to observe Jesus and to interrogate him to find out whether or not uh, a significant messianic movement is beginning. So um, Jesus, obviously knowing that this is happening, um, he's teaching somewhere and a paralytic is healed through the roof. His friends couldn't get in the front door because it was so crowded. They dismantled a bit of the roof and they lowered this paralytic down on a stretcher. And um, remember it said Jesus knew what they were thinking. So at this point the Pharisees, they were just, it was observing. They weren't able to interrogate yet. This was the observation stage. And, uh, but Jesus knew what they were thinking. And so he went up to the man and he said, your sins are forgiven. I mean, that, that, that was the total red rag to a ball to the Pharisees, because they would just see it as blasphemy. Now then, obviously, if Jesus wasn't God, it was blasphemy, but he was God, so it wasn't blasphemy. And he knew what they were thinking in their hearts, and he said, to the, you know, he said, look, what's easier to say your sins are forgiven or to say rise up and be healed? And so he healed the paralytic, and uh, so that kind of proved the point. Uh, then you have the calling of Levi, um, or Matthew, uh, who wrote Matthew's Gospel. You'll remember he was a tax collector. 
and uh, Jesus went to his place like for a dinner party, uh, remember the only other people who would have been there because the Jews had nothing to do with tax collectors and prostitutes. So the only other people at this dinner party would have been other tax collectors and prostitutes. The two groups of people that a good Jew had nothing to do with and Jesus goes to have dinner with them. And the Pharisees complain that he eats with sinners. And uh, Jesus' response to them was that the sick don't need a doctor. Uh, I didn't come to call uh, the righteous, but I came to call sinners to repentance. Then he's uh, questioned by John's disciple. John the Baptist still in jail, but John's disciples come to him and uh, they, they ask about fasting. Why didn't Jesus and uh, the... Uh, disciples observed the fasting that they did and remember they would have been observing fasting a la tradition of the elders and the old testament and of course you know jesus you know sort of like this is where he says that you can't put new wine into um you have to put new wine into new wine skins if you put new wine into old wine skins it'll burst and what he's saying is that god is doing a new thing this is new covenant and uh sort of like therefore the old covenant goes now the tradition of the elders definitely go because they should have never been there in the first place and now we're moving into new covenant so new wine skins uh, for new wine right chapter six and uh the disciples um pick ears of corn on the sabbath and um this of course gets them into trouble uh, with the uh, the Pharisees because they break four of the tradition of the elders and when we did Matthew we saw what they were um, and uh, so they get told off and Jesus reminds them of the story of the time when uh, King David when he was on the run from uh, from, from Saul uh, went into the temple and the the uh, priest gave him the showbread which technically should have only uh, been given to the priests and Jesus said look the son of man is lord of the sabbath and the point is he's saying look if even the old testament law could be flexible to a certain extent all right how ridiculous that you come along with all your rules and all your traditions of the elders you know he was saying crumbs look if the old testament law could be flexible on that point what are you doing condemning my disciples for picking ears of corn on the sabbath and uh, and he makes the point that i am the lord of the sabbath how dull for them to be telling him what he could, couldn't, couldn't do on the Sabbath when he was the Lord of the Sabbath. He created the Sabbath. And of course they had all these rules and regulations in the tradition of the elders, nothing to do with the Old Testament, but all these rules and regulations of a million things you couldn't, couldn't do on, on the Sabbath. And, and of course none of them were biblical in any way at all. Right, then... Um, he goes to the synagogue on a Sabbath, and just to, uh, to underline the point, um, he heals a man with a withered hand. So we've had the Pharisees have a go at him because his disciples picked ears of corn on the Sabbath. According to the, according to the tradition of the elders, you couldn't heal on the Sabbath. So Jesus now goes to the synagogue, it's the Sabbath, and he heals someone. This is Jesus really making the point that he was the Lord of the Sabbath. Um, then at this point, Jesus spends a night in prayer, after which he officially calls the 12 disciples and appoints them. Okay. Right, now we have Luke's equivalent of the Sermon on the Mount. Um, only here it's the Sermon on the Plain. 
Now, it could be the same occasion as Matthew's Sermon on the Mount, but it could be a different occasion as well. It's probably a different occasion. But here we have Luke recording a teaching session of Jesus that was very akin to the teaching session that Matthew had recorded um, as the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, first of all, we get the blessed R's, the Beatitudes, and, and here we have blessed are the poor, those who hunger now, those who weep now, and blessed are you when men hate you and persecute you on account of the Son of Man. In that day, leap for joy. So there's the blesseds, okay. Now we get some woes. So now we get like anti-beatitudes, all right. And Jesus says, woe to the rich. See, because they don't need anything. They don't need Jesus. Woe to the well-fed. Well, they're not hungering after righteousness. It says, woe to those who laugh now. They're not mourning their sinfulness. And he says, woe to you when all men speak well of you. Um, he says, just like the false prophets. You're not good to be too popular if you're following the law, because if you are too popular, I mean, obviously, you're going to be a nice person. But the point is, if we follow Jesus, we are going to, to get persecution. It's going to happen. So therefore, woe unto you when all men speak well of you. It, it shouldn't be like that. Then he goes on and the teaching develops loving enemies. That was new. Under the tradition of the elders, you didn't have to. Um, he teaches on wrong judgment. You know, so, so, so you mustn't judge in a hypocritical way. Um, given it shall be given. Right? You can't outgive God. The more you give to God, the more that God will give back to you. Uh, you get the speck and the log in the eye, but don't, don't, don't try and remove a speck from your brother's eye while you've got a log in, in your own. So really that's back to wrong judgment and being a hypocrite. Um, he's teaching about a tree and its fruit, that a, a good tree bears good fruit. Um, and indeed bad trees bear bad fruits and by your fruit you'll know them so it's how someone lives that you'll know whether or not they're they're following the lord and uh, then you have the parable of the wise and the foolish builders uh one who built the house on the rock and the others who built the house on the sand and that those who trust the lord and obedient to him their house is on the rock but those who don't just hear the words but don't actually live it out uh their their houses are like built on the uh, built on the sand, and so therefore uh, they'll, they'll fall when uh, difficulties come along. Now in chapter 7, we have the <clears throat> incident of the Roman centurion who sends um, his friends to ask Jesus to heal his servant. His servant is ill, he values his servant, and he sends word to Jesus, and um, you know, but, but didn't feel he was worthy to have Jesus actually come under the roof of his house um, and you know like the message he sends to Jesus is look just say you know just say the word I too am a man under authority if I say to one go he goes if I say to one come he comes and so what 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 that centurion was communicating is that he realized that because Jesus was living in submission to his father because he was a man under authority he had the authority to heal his servant and uh, remember, he was a Gentile, this Roman. And you'll remember that Jesus marveled and he said, I have not found such great faith in Israel. Because this centurion understood what faith in Jesus actually meant. But it meant trusting and it meant being obedient. And in the same way, 
that he expected men under him to be obedient to his commands as a centurion, he realised that Jesus was living in obedience to his Father. And conversely, he would know that the Christian life is living in obedience to Jesus. And Jesus just marvelled, because the Jews weren't coming up with faith like that. It took a Roman centurion to really demonstrate uh, you know, what, what true faith actually was. Then Jesus raises a widow's son from the dead. Um, it's a widow from a place called Nain. So there we have a raising from the dead. Uh, hark back to when Elijah healed, uh, raised the, uh, the Gentile woman's son from the dead. Here's Jesus doing the same thing, raisings from the dead. Um, now John is in prison and his disciples, John the Baptist's disciples, come and basically they're coming to check if Jesus is the Messiah. Obviously John is in prison, he's having doubts, which I guess is understandable, I mean crumbs, it can't have been easy. And um, you know, so they come and say, look, you know, Jesus, are you the one who is to come or are we to look for another? And what Jesus does, he heals some people and he casts some demons out of people and then he says, right, now go and tell John what you've seen and heard. And, uh, you know, which, which, which they duly did. And that would have, you know, sort of like, you know, sort of reassured John that he was right about, um, about him. And, uh, and, and then he tells the people how John was the one who God was going to send to prepare the way for Messiah and reminds them of the prophecies of Isaiah. And, um, and, and, and so that, that, that makes John the Baptist one of the great Old Testament prophets and yet Jesus then says but the least in the kingdom of God is greater than he so that's amazing John John was almost the zenith of the Old Testament prophethood and yet Jesus is saying but the least in the kingdom of God is greater than he because here Jesus was bringing in the new you know the New Testament the new covenant and uh, you know so the a child of God any child of God under the new covenant is greater in their status with God than a prophet in the Old Testament, which is amazing. Um, and at this point, Luke just kind of mentions, you've got the brackets here, that uh, the ordinary people of Israel and the tax collectors accepted John and Jesus. So the ordinary, the common folk, they, they accepted him, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law didn't. They rejected Jesus and um, John the Baptist as well. And, uh, and then Luke continues to, um, you know, to give, uh, you, know, what, you know, what Jesus said in response to this. And, and he said that John the Baptist came and he was an ascetic. I, John the, he lived in the desert, he didn't eat nice food or anything like that, right? So that was John the Baptist. And they said that he was demonised. Then the Son of Man, Jesus, comes along, eats and drinks. Jesus wasn't ascetic at all. And he was called a glutton and a drunkard. And so Jesus was saying, look, you know, with some people, you can't please all the people all the time. For those who do not want to believe, it doesn't matter what God does, it will always be wrong. Now Jesus uh, goes to dinner with um, a Pharisee called Simon. And uh, while, while he's there having dinner with this Pharisee, um, a prostitute comes in and washes Jesus' feet with her tears. Now this... This would have been the tear bottle. I've told you about this before. The Jews, they had a, every family had a tear bottle. And every time someone in the family cried, 
um, they, they, they got the tear in the bottle. And in one of the Psalms, it talk, you know, in the Old Testament, it talks about that God puts all our tears in his bottle, you see. And so God's got a tear bottle. And, 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 and so the idea was that Jewish families, they'd have the bottle, okay, and, you know, that kind of every time someone cried, they'd get a tear in the bottle and put the cork on it like, and it would fill up with water. And this was the tears of their family represented. Well, it could be tears of joy as well as tears of sadness. And the tear bottle became one of the most precious things that any Jewish family had. It was one of the prized possessions in a Jewish family. This prostitute, her repentance is so deep that she pours her tear bottle over Jesus' feet. It represented almost what more could you give? And, um, and then she anoints his feet with perfume. So she washes his feet with her tear bottle and then anoints them with perfume. This is an act of total subservience to Jesus as the Messiah. Now, Simon the Pharisee just sits there, thinking if he knew what sort of woman she was, he wouldn't have anything to do with her. And Jesus told Simon, in response to that, a parable, that the bigger the debt that is cancelled, the greater the love towards the one who'd forgiven you the debt. And what Jesus says is that he who has been forgiven little loves little. And he was saying to Simon, she loves me so much because she knows how much I've forgiven her. But you, Simon, and he said, you didn't wash my feet. There was no greeting from you particularly. He says, you're showing me no gratitude at all because you don't think I've forgiven you anything. And the reason was because Simon was, was a proud, self-righteous Pharisee who didn't think he needed to be forgiven. So he didn't think he needed to be forgiven, so Jesus didn't forgive him. And, and, and that's, you know, and, and Jesus, see, who, who Jesus was one with, the prostitute, not Simon, the Pharisee, in any way at all. Right, okay, chapter 8, um, and Luke, tells us now the Galilean travels continue so we know that Jesus is still traveling around up north um, we we have now the the parable of the sower um, remember the sower goes out and sows the seed and it falls on three different sorts of soil and um, remembering in the parable the point is that one is someone who hears the gospel and rejects it so someone who doesn't become a Christian but there are three seeds they all become Christians uh, but one one falls away pretty quick the other falls away like you know a bit later like you know money and riches and cares of life right and uh, only one out of the the seeds actually goes on to produce fruit and, and really be a, a disciple for life as it were and uh, you know, so you know the the odds are not in our favour of really being disciples our whole lives. That's a challenge. That is, I like that. That that's a challenge. Um, and then he gives the teaching about that that you don't hide your lamp under a jar or under a bed. You know, sort of like you don't. You know, if you've got a light, you know, so you don't have light bulbs. There's your, you know, your lamp. You don't put it under the bed. You don't put your, you know, sort of like a, your wash basin over it and hide the light. If it's there, you let it out 
And, uh, you know, of course, the sad thing is that there are Christians who don't. They do hide it. Um, you know, they, they've got the light of the world. They've got Jesus, but they live more or less as if they didn't. Uh, that's, that's tragic. Um, and while Jesus is teaching at this point, his mother and brothers turn up. It's clear that, that once, by the time Jesus started his public ministry, that Joseph was, was, was dead. Um, either dead or gone off with someone else, but that is just so unlikely. I mean, I think it's pretty clear that Joseph was dead. So here Jesus' mother and brothers turn up, and Jesus is told, look, your, your mother and brothers are outside. And Jesus' response to the crowd is, my mother and brothers are those who hear God's word and put it into practice. And there again you have Jesus just taking that slight step back from his family, not disowning his family because they were his family, but holding up the preeminence of the, the family of God, the, the family of the church. And um, you know that you know that Jesus had another family other than his <laughs> genetic family. Then Luke gives us the um, occasion when uh, some of the disciples um, go out onto the lake with Jesus in a boat and a, a, a storm blows up. Um, Jesus is fast asleep. They're terrified. This storm is so bad um, that they think they're going to die. And uh, they, they have to actually wake Jesus up to make sure he knew how badly they were panicking. That's peace. That is Jesus fast asleep. So have to wake him up and so Jesus kind of like wakes up and he tells the storm to go away and it does and they marvel even the wind and the waves do what he says but then of course they do he created the universe of course they do what he says but the disciples were were gobsmacked um, obviously Matthew tells us of another similar occasion um, and it was a completely different occasion when the disciples were on their own in the boat in a storm and Jesus walks to them and uh, so that was a different occasion so you know he, he was demonstrating to them very clearly that he was Lord not just of the Sabbath not just over sickness over demons but over nature in its totality um, then Luke tells us of the uh, occasion when Jesus uh, set the gathering demoniac free um, Matthew Matthew says there were two demoniacs. Luke only indicates one, um, which is possibly just that if they were husband and wife, it wouldn't be unusual if the wife didn't get mentioned. It was just kind of like that in the ancient world. So if they were husband and wife, and maybe they were, nevertheless, they're, they're set free. And it was this, this occasion when Jesus, um, you know, the demons begged not to be sent to the abyss or, you know, to Tartarus. Um, not that Jesus was planning to send them there anyway. The demons were just panicking. And, uh, you know, they said, send us into the pigs. So I think probably Jesus seeing a chance to kill two birds with one stone. So after all, what, what were the Jews doing raising a herd of pigs? See, swift buck on the side. But not, not, not quite according to their law, was it? Not, not pigs. So he sends the demons into the pigs and the pigs run into the sea and all drown. And, um, and it says that the people in that area begged Jesus to leave. wonder why. Um, so Jesus goes off on his way. And, um, and he's called to 
bloke called Jairus whose daughter was was dying and um, and he's told of this and so he sets out to Jairus's house and on his way there's a woman who's had a hemorrhage internal bleeding for years and years and years and um, as he's on his way this this woman just touches the hem of his garment and she's healed and uh, it says that you know that Jesus he, he knew that power went out and she was healed and he said oh who who did that you know and um, so so she was healed um, and then Jesus is told don't bother to come to Jairus's house because the daughter's died now she's dead it's too late but Jesus went nevertheless uh, got there the funeral was going on and um, he took Peter James and John into the room where the body of the girl was lying and uh, he raised her from the dead so um, how to how to wreck a funeral um, chapter 9 he sends the the 12 out um, to preach to heal and to cast out demons that's what they're um, they're told to do um, and Luke tells us at this point that Herod's getting a bit unnerved here because uh, he he was wondering whether Jesus was John the Baptist come back to life because by now Herod had had John the Baptist beheaded and he he was quite irrationally but when you've got a guilty conscience you are irrational thought whether John the Baptist had come back to life so um, Herod not in the best frame of mind there um, we have the feeding of the 5,000 remember the boy brings his lunch basically and Jesus feeds 5,000 and that, that was just the men would have just been the men that was counted so there would have actually been a lot more than 5,000 with women and children there as well um, so five loaves and two fish and it's interesting is that Jesus broke it and it's it's you know what Jesus can do when we're broken you know if we're unbroken there's not enough of us to go around because it's just us but if you break something then what's inside can come out so if we're broken before the Lord then the Lord can come out and then what we can't do he can do then it's him and not us and that's what you know like the symbolism you know like Jacob the Lord wrestling with him and broke his thigh it's amazing what happens when a Christian is broken before the Lord because that really does release Jesus's life in us rather than it just being us you know kind of like in our own strength so Jesus breaks the bread and, and, and what wasn't enough becomes enough and, and of course there's uh, amazing symbolism there um, and then Jesus begins to, to teach about his suffering, that he was going to die, that he was going to be raised from the dead on, on the third day. And in, in that context, um, tells people that if they were to follow him, then they've got to take up their cross. They've got to deny themselves. And of course, if you take up your cross, when Jesus took up his cross, it was to carry it somewhere so he was nailed on it and die on it now we're back to the bread being broken because that's what the brokenness is it's that dying to self so Jesus is saying look if you're going to follow me you've got to die to yourself it's going to be the end of you and your life and what you want and what you think and that and it's going to be me living through you 
Next we have the transfiguration. You remember Peter, James and John taken up to a mountain and they're sort of sitting there and suddenly Jesus, he, he's there, his glory bursts through. They, they now see him in all his glory. And remember Moses and Elijah are there, the law and the prophets. And uh, you'll remember Peter, you know, if you can't think of anything, when, when you don't know what to do, talk. That, that was Peter. And he said, Lord, I'll make a hut for you and I'll make a hut for Moses and I'll make a hut for Elijah. And I'll do this and I'll do that. And then you remember the Lord, you know, God spoke from heaven. And he said, this is my beloved son, listen to him. So another occasion of Peter, if you haven't got anything better to say, just shut up. Listen to Jesus. And um, so there they are, and they see Jesus in, in all his glory. And they come down, you remember the next day from the mountain, and the other disciples um, are desperately trying to um, cast the demon out, out of a boy. Now, it's a, a demon that has rendered the boy dumb, and probably their problem with this particular demon is that, and we saw this when we did Matthew, was that casting out a dumb demon was another so-called messianic sign. Because under Pharisaic Judaism, to cast a demon out, you had to find out what its name was and then cast it out using its name. Now, that's not biblical. That's not the biblical way to cast demons out, but that's the way they did it, all right? So therefore, if you've got a demon that won't speak, you can't, it, it won't talk to you, you can't find out what its name is. I mean, not that demons have names. We saw this in the Demonology series. But if, if it won't talk to you, you can't find out the information you need to cast it out. Therefore, they designated dumb demons, as it were, as being messianic sign. And that's probably why the disciples were balking. They'd cast loads of demons out by now, but this one got them, and it's probably for that reason. And Jesus comes down the mountain, and he sees them, and he's cross with them. He's angry, and he tells them off. For their unbelief and and this was the point when he says how long do i have to stay with you and he really really ticked them off and um and it was at that point that he tells them that he was going to be betrayed into the hands of men which of course eventually he was by by judas luke then tells us of um an argument that the disciples were having um tremendously important subject they were arguing which one of them was the greatest. And um, that's just the sort of argument that Jesus manages to get in on when we're having it, isn't it? And, and so he, he gets a child. He calls a child to him. He says, I, I want to um, just what you're saying about who of you are the greatest. But he points to the child and he says, look, the least is the greatest. The humblest is the greatest. The servant is the greatest. The one amongst you with the very least pretensions about himself is actually the greatest. So, how to scupper an argument? We've seen him blow a funeral out of the water, and, and that's certainly how to scupper an argument about who, who's the greatest. Um, then we have a fascinating um, instance here of uh, some disciples. You know, some of Jesus' disciples come up to him and they say, Jesus, we've we found someone who's, who's not of our group casting out demons in your name. And they said, we told him to stop. So we put a stop to that, Jesus. We're not having that. He's not one of the twelve. We don't know who he was, who he is. And, um, and Jesus said to them, whoever is not against you is for you. And Jesus said, you shouldn't have stopped him. And of course, the point is here, that although this guy wasn't one of the twelve, and although they didn't know who he was from Adam, 
Jesus did. And this is the great danger of exclusivism, isn't it? This is the great danger of, you know, sort of like feeling that in following the law that somehow, you know, we're, we're, we're somewhat more special, you know. Unless you're in our group, you can't actually be following the law, can you? And the point was that Jesus had, you know, things on the go that the disciples knew nothing about. And this guy was a genuine disciple. But because he wasn't in their group, they wanted to shut him up. And Jesus said, no, 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 he's, he's not against you. He's for you. He's, he's one of you. You just didn't realise it. Right, now, that, that, at that point, Luke ends the, um, you know, sort of uh, the Judean ministry, all right? And uh, the rest of his book, and the most of it is to come, all right, is uh, the, the last four months of Jesus' life. So what happens is we, 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 we skip... There's another, at this point, Jesus goes and he spends some time in Jerusalem. Now, again, that is an instance where only John's Gospel covers that. So none of the other Gospels do. So we'll see that in John's Gospel. So at this point, Jesus goes and spends some time in Jerusalem. But after that, he goes down and he's in Judea and he's in Perea. And this is now the last four months leading up to the crucifixion. All right. Um, and Luke, Luke starts this period off because Jesus would have spent time in Samaria as he went down there, as he headed south. And, um, and the Samaritans reject him. So, on, 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 you know, sort of like he passes through Samaria, he preaches there, and the Samaritans reject him. And James and John want to call fire down from heaven. Now, you remember there was a time... Uh, during the ministry of Elijah and King Ahab, who was dreadfully <laughs> out of fellowship with God, to say the least. In fact, he wasn't a believer at all. He was a, a dread, one of the worst kings Israel had ever had. And uh, he was into occultism and, and idol worship. He was a murderer, dreadful man. And you'll remember on one occasion, he, he beckoned Elijah and uh, he sent groups of soldiers. And the first group came along and they said, Oi, he wants you, like, told Elijah to go. And Elijah called fire down from heaven and they were consumed. And Ahab sent another group of soldiers and they said, Oi, he wants you. He called fire down from heaven and they were consumed. A third group of soldiers went with a sensible captain and he asked Elijah if he would come with him. And Elijah, yeah, yeah, sure. You know, all I wanted was to be asked nicely sort of thing. And, um, <laughs> and so here... James and John, who are having a job grasping that this is New Testament stuff, this is, this is grace and truth now, all right, they want to call down fire from heaven, you know, they said, look, they've rejected you, Jesus, we'll call fire down from heaven. Now then, it's just, just ask, they haven't, everywhere they've gone with Jesus, Jesus has been rejected, but they don't want to call down fire from heaven. Why now? Well, because it's the Samaritans. The Samaritans after the northern kingdom was carted off into Assyrian captivity, the ten tribes were never heard of again. They intermingled with the Assyrians so much that although they, they were clearly Jewish, there was an awful lot of Gentile in them as well. And the Samaritans were like a Jewish half-caste. They considered themselves to be Jewish and were, but they had mixed in with the Assyrians over hundreds of years, and the Jews considered themselves true Jews. And the Samaritans, even though they believed in the Lord, 
they considered to be not proper Jews at all. And there was racial prejudice here. And this <laughs> is why they want to call fire down from heaven. This is blatant prejudice here. This is, this is racism of the worst kind. And Jesus rebukes them. Jesus tells them off. I mean, you know, it's shuddering to think that there are still Christian, inverted commas, churches in this world where blacks cannot go in and worship. That's appalling. And, and here Jesus takes his stand against racism in no uncertain terms at all. Now, three, three interesting guy, guys here, all right? We have a little story of potential followers, potential disciples. And um, firstly, we have a guy, he comes up to Jesus and he says, Lord, I, I want to follow you. And uh, J Jesus says, look, you know, the, the, the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And um, he, he, Jesus warns him of potential homelessness. I call this guy Mr. Too Fast. He said, Lord, I want to be a disciple. And Jesus said, hold it. Wait a minute. Count the cost. That's important. Then Jesus called another bloke. Now, this is Jesus saying, oh, you, you follow me. And this guy said, no, first let me go and bury my father. Now, what he's saying is, when my father's dead, <laughs> you see, so I'll, I'll be back in 20 years or so. And, and Jesus says, no, no, that's no good. Now, he's Mr. Too Slow. See, his family meant too much to him. Jesus says, I want you to follow me. And he's, no, 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 Lord. So, so that was no good. Um, his family was, was meant too much. And then a, th a third bloke, and, um, and, and he was like halfway between the two. And he said, well, I will, I, I will follow you, Jesus, but first let me go and say goodbye to my family. Now, not that there's anything wrong in saying goodbye to your family, but this was when Jesus said, look, he who puts his hand to the plough <coughs> and looks back is not fit for service in the kingdom of God. Now, this is, he's talking about service. So when you get half-hearted conversions, they're no good for service. They're the ones, they're, they're, they're the seeds that fall away quickly or after a few years because they're into money and, and well, well I've got a family and I've got bills to pay and they fall away for that reason. So you see that you know Jesus really did want a, a quality of discipleship. Right okay chapter 10 and uh, Jesus uh, sends out the 72. He's got another larger group now of 72 disciples and he sends them out and um, you know sort of um, off off they go. And Jesus says that the, the, the towns that were rejecting him at this time, as most of them were, um, would, would face a worse time at the final judgment than Sodom and Gomorrah, because Sodom and Gomorrah hadn't seen the signs and the wonders that, that, that these towns had. Then the 72 come back and they're rejoicing over their power over demons. Even the demons are subject to us, they say. And Jesus says, yes, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven, blah, blah, blah. And he says, I've given you power to trample over all the power of the enemy. But he reminds them, he says, look, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Don't, don't get too, too taken up with power. Don't get too taken up with victory over Satan. Your names are written in heaven. That's the thing that... Um, uh, that counts. And then Jesus rejoices that these things were revealed to little children, he called them. And he said, look, kings and prophets wanted to see this, but they didn't, but you have. And Jesus rejoices that just the common people have been given this revelation. 
Uh, then a teacher of the law asked who his neighbour was, and that's when you get the parable of the Good Samaritan. Uh, you know, do you remember this guy lying on by the side of the road, beaten, and priests and Pharisees and the good Jews come by, ignore him? But it was a Samaritan, hence their racism, all right? A Samaritan who did the good thing. So there's the parable of the Good Samaritan. The Samaritan helped this guy. Uh, then he's at the home of Mary and Martha. We'll see more of them in John's Gospel. Mary sits at Jesus' feet, and Martha was rush, 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 doing this, doing that, and, uh, you know, sort of like, you know, hoovering and dusting because Jesus is here, blah, blah, blah. And Jesus commends Mary, and uh, but he tells Mary off because Mary's just flat, flat, flat. And Jesus said, no, no, just... She said, Mary has chosen the better part. Just sit at my feet. Don't worry about the washing up and stuff like that. But she was all in a flounder. All right, that's the point. Chapter 11, um, and the disciples uh, asked Jesus to teach them on prayer. So you get the Lord's Prayer. And uh, G Jesus tells the parable of the, the friend who goes to someone at midnight saying, look, I've got to have you know bread. And, and he keeps going on and, and, and he gets what he wants because he goes on so much. That's prayer. Um, here you get when the, the Pharisees tell him that he was casting demons out by the power of Beelzebub, by the power of Satan, blasphemy against the Spirit, not homed in on by Luke, he's writing to Gentiles. And uh, then you get Jesus saying the sign of Jonah and that Nineveh would rise and condemn them uh, because Nineveh, though Gentile repented, Israel isn't. And, uh, and he says, look, if the eye is the lamp of the body, if your eye is dark, the whole body will be. And, you know, if they're missing, they're seeing Messiah, but they're not seeing him. Uh, and, of course, their, you know, their future is just complete darkness And uh, because Israel is going to be cut out and replaced by the Gentiles. And, uh, and, of course, the sign of Jonah, three days in the belly of the fish, was what Jesus said, that is going to be my death and being raised again from the dead is going to be the sign of Jonah for you. And, uh, you know, and the sign of Jonah represented that Israel didn't repent, but Nineveh, the Gentiles, did. The church, you know, the, the, the kingdom being taken from Israel, given to the church. Then he goes to a Pharisee's house for dinner, and the Pharisee is amazed that Jesus didn't do all the ceremonial washing, the tradition of the elders. And, uh, and Jesus declares the Pharisees to be like a, a clean cup and dish on the outside, but inside they're full of greed and wickedness. Um, he pronounces six woes against the Pharisees and the teachers of the law now. Uh, they tithe herbs, they tithe even herbs, but neglect justice and the love of God. They love the important seats in the synagogue and to be greeted in the marketplace. They are unmarked graves, men walk over them without knowing it. They load people with heavy burdens, but don't help them carry them. That's all the, the traditions of the elders. They build the tombs for the prophets of the past, while they're busy killing and persecuting the current ones. And Jesus says that that generation of Israel will be held responsible for the blood of the prophets from Abel, he was the first one to die in Genesis, to Zechariah. Now Zechariah, that's 2 Chronicles 24. In the Jewish Old Testament, Chronicle 2 Chronicles is the last book in their Old Testament. We have a different order. So what he's saying is, the, all the sin of it that happened in the time of the Old Covenant, all that is going to be visited on Israel now. Why? Because they're rejecting Jesus. That was worse than every sin throughout the whole Old Testament period. And that judgment is going to come on them, the church given to the, uh, the kingdom taken from Israel, given to the Gentiles. And then the last woe, they take away the key of knowledge. They won't enter, but they won't let others in either. So they won't go into the kingdom of God, but they won't let others go in either. They're standing in everyone's way. 
So that six woes pronounced against the Pharisees. Again, one could argue that was a bit tactless, but <laughs> Jesus, you know, came to make it absolutely clear that in order to follow him, there had to be a renunciation of everything that was self-righteous. And for Israel, it was their, their very religiosity that comprised the biggest barrier between them and salvation. And that was why Jesus was, was, he was merciless with all this, because it was the only chance they had of seeing it for what it was, repenting and being saved. Right, okay, cha chapter 12, and this, this is where we're going to end it tonight, and we'll finish next time. Chapter 12, Jesus warns the Pharisees against what he calls the yeast of the Pharisees, and that is hypocrisy. Um, that's carried over in other books in the New Testament, the idea that you only need a little bit of yeast or, you know, yeast or leaven, a tiny little bit, and it affects the whole batch of dough. Well, that's the danger of hypocrisy, all right? Hypocrisy, a little bit here and there, and it affects the whole of life. And the Pharisees were full of hypocrisy. Tells the disciples not to fear men who can only kill the body, because remember, many of them were going to face martyrdom. He says, but rather than fearing men who can only kill you physically, he says, you fear God. Having killed the body, he can cast you into Gehenna. But he was saying, but God loves you. You're precious to him. So, you know, fear him. Not, not man. Then there's the parable of the rich fool. You know, he built his barns and he says, oh, I've got everything I need now. I've built my barns. Great, I've arrived. And then God said to him, you fool, this night your soul is required of you. Well, what are these barns then? Well, it all went back in the box. I mean, he had hotels on Mayfair. Well, the game was up and it all went back in the box. He couldn't take it with him and he was lost. And uh, then the teaching on not worrying. God provides for the birds and the plants and he'll look after you. Then parables of being watchful, uh, the servants waiting for the master to return. The master goes away and they've got to be good servants until he comes back. And, um, and then Jesus said, look, I, I, I didn't come to bring peace. I came to bring a sword. I came to bring fire on the earth. And he says that even families would divide over him. And of course that happens. Families do split because of following Jesus. There, there, there are those who follow Jesus and their families reject them because they do. That's a price if necessary, we have to pay. Jesus didn't come to bring peace in the sense that everything's gonna be lovey-dovey and fine. He came to bring division because he's coming to a world that is fallen and a world that is being controlled by Satan. And then he, he says, look, the Jews should be interpreting the signs as they do the weather. You, just, you know, a nice sunset, it's gonna be a nice day the next day. They should interpret the signs, messianic signs all over the place, but they're not. They're not interpreting the signs properly because they don't want to. And then Jesus gives teaching on the importance of being reconciled with anyone that you've wronged. And um, the context of this is, is a, it's a warning to Israel to get right with him, <laughs> all right, before, as it were, the sword of judgment falls. And he gives the picture of, a, you know, like, you know, your adversary, get right with him before he goes to the magistrate and gets you thrown into jail. So he's kind of saying, look, get right, Israel, sort yourself out before you get thrown into prison, as it were. Sadly, they didn't, and the sword of judgment fell, and the kingdom was taken from them and given to the Gentile church. But nevertheless, in here, the importance that if you've, if you've sinned against somebody, then you must go and put it right with them. The onus is on you, in exactly the same way that the onus was on Israel at this time to put themselves right with Jesus.
Right, we'll finish Luke's Gospel next time.